Tune in into KBOO Portland on 90.7 FM, on K282BH Flamath on 104.3 FM, K220HR Hood River on 91.9 FM, and streaming on web at kboo.fm. Hey, Michael here. I'm with the Tin Can Phone Podcast, the radio show where you can hear about the influence incarceration has straight from the source. We tell you the story from the inside out. So make sure to check us out on KBOO Community Radio every first Tuesday at 10 a.m. Hello, and welcome to Pathways, where you are invited to join us with a visit with leaders in personal and cultural transformation. I'm your host, Donald Altman. The world is awash in change. Human survival and evolution are being pushed to meet a new set of challenges and crises, economical, ecological, and sociological, But instead of fostering unity, these challenges seem to be fanning the fires of extremity. Here's the thing, though. Extreme views and actions, however much they may seem to be needed, push us into a world of duality, into the world of blame and shame. What happens when we identify so strongly with our causes that we forget the humanity of others who might disagree with us? The danger is losing compassion understanding, love, and the ability to listen, as well as the wisdom of knowing that we are all in this together. Fortunately, there is something called hope. Hope can be described in many ways. There's even a psychology of hope that was developed by psychologist C.R. Snyder. But the hope we're talking about today is spiritual hope, mystical hope, the hope that dwells within and connects each of us to the miraculous wellspring of life. To help explore the idea of contemplative living and hope in a modern world is the modern-day mystic, Episcopal priest, writer, and internationally known retreat leader, Cynthia Bourgault. Cynthia divides her time between solitude at her seaside hermitage in Maine 
and a demanding schedule of travel, traveling globally to teach and spread the recovery of the Christian contemplative and wisdom path. Cynthia is an advocate of the meditative practice of centering prayer and has worked closely with fellow teachers and colleagues, including Thomas Keating, Bruno Barnhart, and Richard Rohr. She has actively participated in numerous interspiritual dialogues and events with luminaries and spiritual leaders. Cynthia is a member of the Global Peace Initiative for Women and recipient of the 2014 Contemplative Voices Award. She's a founding director of both the Contemplative Society and the Aspen Wisdom School. She has many books and her books include Centering Prayer and Inner Awakening, Chanting the Psalms, Eye of the Heart, Love is Stronger Than Death, the Corner of Fourth and Non-Dual, and I love that title, by the way, and the book Mystical Hope, which we'll be talking about. Well, it's an honor and a pleasure to have Cynthia Berjolt here with us today. Hello, Cynthia, and welcome to the Pathways Show. Hi, Donald. Well, it's an honor to be here and a, and a great treat. So uh, let's see what we can do with hope. <laughs> well, that's great. I know it's going to be a treat for our audience as well. So I, th you know, I thought I'd ask you some general questions about your work and then get into the idea of mystical hope and talk about a class that you're teaching on the topic. You know, in today's world, the idea of contemplation seems like a luxury, doesn't it? I mean, it's almost an oxymoron because everybody's looking at their screens. Everybody is frantically onto the next thing and the next thing. And you say in, in one of the readings I saw online that contemplation is not a pious lifestyle. And it seems like it might be, but could you explain that? Why, why is it not? How can we integrate it into our lives? Well, it, it's often developed like a pious lifestyle that people will look at it from the outside and say, uh, you know, you live in this beautiful natural place and you don't have anybody else around you to hassle you and you spend a lot of time <laughs> meditating and you eat simple, delicious, organic food. And uh, But that's just the outer trappings. Uh, mm. and we've grown up a whole sort of devotional thing around the outer trappings. Uh, uh, contemplation is really about a change in consciousness. It's an inner change. And, yeah, and not just an inner change in morality or piety or, or devotion, but an actual of the operating system of perception. Mm. So that looking at things, uh, not from that intrinsic divide in consciousness, which is characteristic of all dualistic and intellectual thought, but that you're grasping things from a deeper place of unified wholeness. You're seeing in wholes. Yeah, and, I, I've always thought that it's almost a revolutionary change. It is. Of our it, awareness of perception. It is, and the, the 14th century monk the, who wrote The Cloud of Unknowing in, in an unknown British monk was the first one in our Western tradition to name contemplation as an exercise in consciousness transformation not just a pious devotion or a sort of particular intimate and mystical divine prayer. That, that if you're sitting there in your beautiful lifestyle in your pretty little non-hassling place and are not doing the inner work, you're not in contemplation. You're, uh, you're in illusion. <laughs> <laughs> right. Your own path into getting into this, what was that like for you? How did you, uh, what drew you to this initially? Well, I think that... Uh, it was probably, if truth be told, my my dual religious upbringing uh, in Quaker meetings of the childhood Pennsylvania I grew up mm. in 
And then the very, very uh, kind of intellectually top-heavy uh, Christian science I was being officially raised as a, in as a child. And in the Quaker meetings we had once a week in our school, it was silent meeting for worship as the Quakers. How they ever kept a room full of kids quiet for a half an hour, I don't know. But it was in that beautiful, beautiful setting that I experienced the first uh, direct touch of the presence of the divine and the realization that it didn't have to do with words and concepts, but it had mm. a, a kind of deep intimacy and, and replenishment uh, that just relaxed my little being. So I I knew that that was there and I, I associated from the start the, the contemplation with a path of knowledge that got you deeper into uh, seeing the divine wholeness of everything than you ever got in all the stuff I was learning in school. So uh, that sort of went in the back of my mind for many, many years as, as I tackled the burdens of being a householder in life and raising kids and teaching and getting a PhD and uh, becoming an Episcopal priest and doing all that sort of stuff. But all of a sudden, it plopped out to the surface again, like kaboom, when I, on a chance, signed up for a, a, a retreat on Centering Prayer that was being offered at St. Benedict's Monastery in Snowmass, Colorado by mm. Thomas Keating, and discovered that, uh, that Centering Prayer was like an instant playback of, of the Quaker silent meeting for worship that I knew as a child with its wordlessness, its intimacy, its immediacy, and its palpable shift in consciousness. So but, centering prayer was kind of a, a, a gateway for you. Definitely. And it repositioned my life with my teaching. You know, I had been up to that point, any, any other kind of professorial Episcopalian trying to teach theology the, uh, to unruly congregations. And after centering prayer, I began to realize that until people had actually gone through that shifting consciousness, that they were unteachable. And so I, you know, they just got locked mm. in kind of controversy and batting ideas around and polarization and over-identification with their ideologies that you were talking about so meaningfully in the opening comments mm -hmm. in, our, in our session. And it was centering prayer that, that put a little bit of a a cushion around the whole thing that people could begin to hear, could begin to listen, could begin to see for a different place. So I gradually withdrew from teaching anybody who hadn't first regularly, uh, you know, submitted themselves to a meditation practice. And it made a complete difference in the way my teaching was, uh, was heard and received and really launched this whole wisdom school uh, branding that I've been working in for the past quarter of a century or more. What I find kind of interesting, what you're saying about centering prayer, um, and I was first introduced to that in a retreat at a Benedictine monastery, which was a wonderful retreat, and I was struck by how sim similar it was to the Buddhist meditation that I had learned. But what I'm kind of hearing from you is that it allowed you to listen in a new way. And we don't often think of a meditative practice as a listening practice, but how, could you explain how that maybe allowed you to hear things in a fresh way or got you in a different uh, perspective with relation to others? In centering prayer specifically, which uh, 
the the method of of clearing their your mind of all this monkey mind chatter all the time is to willingly let let go of a thought it's just like a buddhist learns to release something they're clinging to and centering prayer is not about single point concentration but it's about this repeated perfecting of this gesture of stepping back inner deferring thomas keating used to call it taking a brief vacation from yourself Oh, and, I like that. <laughs> yeah, it's beautiful. And during that brief vacation that you learn that you can go on perfectly well without your constants having to shore up your ego self and your positions and your story of yourself, your identity, uh, and you're still there. Voila. And uh, so centering prayer gives you a measure of stepping back, not not following the dog you have in the fight. And mm. and uh and realizing that there's something always deeper at work in a situation than your particular ego investment in it, which is basically what we, we have most our conversation for anyway. So the openness and spaciousness comes as part and parcel of it. Because that letting go attitude really does uh, place people in a new light. So we're letting go of uh, some of the ego constructs, ego constructs, belief systems that we may have had for years and years. Yeah, yeah. And it's not like a dramatic conversion, like I renounce these. But during the time of the conversation, just like during the time of the prayer, you can you learn you can live without them. Mm. Not your fixed point of reference. And so there's a genuine openness to receiving what's there in the moment. In That's a new beautiful. Moment. Yeah. yeah, I know uh, David Bohm, who was a physicist and worked with Krishnamurti. And uh, David Bohm worked with uh, helping people begin to notice what he called their absolute necessity, the thing that you thought you had to have in that fight, yeah. so to speak. Yeah. <laughs> and what would it be like to let go of that? And when I've done classes um, and had people introduce people to that concept, it was very difficult challenging for a lot of people to let go of some of these absolute necessities or even to think about what is my absolute necessity is kind of frightening right right well because the question always gets posed wrongly it's like what is my necessity what is my you know you can't do it from my you have to mm. let it from the subject pull and people think oh this is all self-abnegation that god makes us lay down the burdens we carry most precious it doesn't have anything to do with a restructuring of will it has something mm. to do with restructuring of consciousness so that you really let go of things at the subject pole rather than the object pole mm. and you're just free of the whole burden of carrying yourself but around like a heavy turtle shell on your back that's a and that's a lot to carry, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, exactly. we consume about ninety-eight percent of our life energy doing that. Now, um, you do a lot of uh, interspiritual work. Can you talk a little about that and how you consider yourself Christian contemplative, and how does that mesh with uh, interspiritual uh, work for you? Well, interspiritual was another one of these great innovations of Thomas Keating. He loved it. He loved the idea. He was the 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 Trappist monks of his order were quite in the format or, or in the forefront when in the, of the interspiritual contemplative movement. Mm. It was not just interspiritual dialogue, but interspiritual contemplative practice. And so he he ran this wonderful little contemplative think tank called the Snowmass Conference for more than 25 years. Mm -hmm. 
inviting uh, uh, contemplative practitioners, masters from all the traditions to come together, just a select free few, and worship together and then discuss from the point of view of mutual sharing what it was what it was like for them. So from Thomas, I came to learn the, the answer to this question is that the great religions are like colors of a rainbow. Mm. They all come out of that primordial white light of oneness. But as oneness breaks, as, as the white light breaks into colors, and it has to break into colors uh, to show what's really in it. Mm. Uh, each path, uh, in a particular and unique way, sort of superintends a certain color of the heart of God, if you want to use that language. Yeah. I know it's in language, but we can say of the divine manifestingness. It's, you know, <laughs> just about 15 more syllables that get you not that much farther down the pike. <laughs> One of Meister Eckhart once said, "No, uh, no appearance without a mode of appearance. You have to, you have to have a form to hold something in, in order for it to be visible at all. So the religions are the great forms, all holding uh, the indivisible oneness of the divine intelligence and compassion. And in each one, they shine a little bit differently. It's like we're all, all holding down one of the corners of the eye." of the elephant the blind men are trying to describe. Oh, right. well, it's all one elephant. Yeah. Uh, and if we start fighting about which part of it is better than the other, uh, we could move directly to the elephantness of it. And mm. so the contemplative inner spiritual work has been an effort to do just that. Rather than trying to figure out which viewpoints are theologically better than others, to to mutually join hands to go deeper into concepts such as compassion, love, forbearance, equanimity, uh, sacrifice, surrender. All of these things are the eyes of the needles in all the great spiritual practices. Absolutely, absolutely. And I love your idea of saying that each one of these practices is kind of like a container yeah. or a, a holder for that wisdom. Yeah, right. and the traditions bootstrap each other. I mean, people on the outside who are just fond of polarization think they hate each other and that it's a zero-sum gain and the success of one means the failure of another. Mm. At that contemplative level, the, the religions are constantly holding each other off, handing off the baton, realizing when somebody of one of the traditions has sort of stumbled and fallen and sending life into that tradition. Because if you lose, lost one of them, it would be like a precious color of the rainbow had dropped out. That's a wonderful way of describing that. Yeah, uh, yeah you're teaching, maybe we could talk a little bit about the class that you're teaching. And this is a class on mystical hope through spiritualityandpractice.com. And that's a website, but that's a container, isn't it, for a lot of spiritual yeah. uh, traditions. Tell us a little about the class and yeah. Well, it's a very simple online course. Uh, spirituality and practice was the brainchild of Marianne and Fred, Fred Brussett. Uh, and it's the world's simplest and lowest key uh, course structure I've ever found. It's basically based on uh, emails that the, the teacher sends out, you know, a, a set of a cont contracted number of emails with mm -hmm short teaching, a commentary, a spiritual practice. There's a practice circle that's open. Uh, 
to and people it, who are in the class? People that are in the class, and it's open 24-7. It comes with your registration fee. And so you can, it's not everybody has to be all together at the same place, which is virtually impossible when you have 24 time zones going around the world. Uh, <laughs> but anybody can type in, and then anybody at their time will respond. And so these wonderful rolling conversations get started all around the world. And then we have been adding one or two uh, Zoom uh, meetings when anybody who can gets together and ask questions online, which, which Marianne fields beautifully. But it's a very low-tech, user-friendly, uh, encouraging, uh, inexpensive as they go, uh, way to dive deeply into a spiritual subject. And I've, I've done, uh, this Mystical Hope course is the 14th I've done for, for Marianne. The other thing is after they've had their run, uh, they, uh, they then are available in an evergreen format and anybody can take the, the classes mm -hmm. either individually, you know, you, you just sign up for it privately or you can put a little little group together and Marianne will help expedite some uh, some connective tissue. Oh, so you, oh, so you could still do a, a practice circle if yeah. possible. Yeah, I mean, she could help she could help with the setup of that. Uh, it wouldn't be the one that would have me in it, but it's a right. So they're intended to have an official launch period and then to be perpetually there for use. I mean, people are still using the first of the 14 courses I ever put together, so. Uh, that's wonderful. So now, this is a six week course, is that correct? Yeah, we're doing it to correspond directly with the Christian season of Lent, which begins mm. February 17. I, I thought that was very interesting because that's a time of uh, reflection historically, right? Yeah, and people are always looking for things, worthy spiritual things to do in Lent. So we, we decided we'd offer them this to to take a look at my, my it was one of the first books I wrote, Mystical Hope, and my, mm. my computer is making everything fuzzy. But it's been around for uh, over 20 years now, but it's it, it had a renaissance sort of during the heat of COVID. It's That's like, interesting. So people were hungry for we're getting some kind of hope or sustenance. Yeah, yeah, it's the old uh, old Testament prophet Ecclesiastes wailed at one point, Lord, what is there to hope for? You got the pandemic, <laughs> you got global warming, you got polarization in politics, you got help, you know. <laughs> <laughs> right. And uh, so, uh, so people began picking up the book again and Marianne with her ever good sense of what's percolating out there said, well, maybe we should just do an e-course on it. And I said, well, what could be better about talking about mystical help during Lent? Uh, That's wonderful. How would you describe hope and how do you define it? I mean, there are different kinds of hope, right? Oh yeah, yeah. Well, for the, for the in our average way of, of looking at it, Hope is that sort of positive and, and uh, you know, overjoyed feeling, you know, can-do feeling you get when things are going your way. It's mm -hmm. a response to a favorable outcome. But as the Buddhists have been sort of warning the Christians all along, this kind of hope is illusory for a couple of reasons. First of all, because it, it takes us outside of ourselves. We, you know, it, it pins it on something called the future, which the B Buddhists will say, well, it doesn't even exist. That's a form of grasping, isn't it? It's a form of grasping and grasping onto straws because the, the future is basically a concept and it takes us out of ourselves when it's rather inside ourselves that we have to look. And so the 
the characteristics of this mystical hope I'm trying to describe. And and the reason I came up with that term so many years ago is not because there's anything more holy or airy-fairy about it, but it's the kind of hope that's been assumed and talked about in all the great mystical traditions that's so different from our ordinary sense of hope. So it's a kind of hope uh-huh. that's not tied to a good outcome. It's not tied to an outcome at all. And it has to do instead with some quality of presence. And and you mindfulness people are going to really love that. It's a way we pay attention in the in the present and pick up a sort of intimacy and sustenance that's coming from us that's right under our feet that we don't see when we're out there pulling rabbits out of the hat in the future. Uh, right. And, and it does bear fruit in us uh, in the in the psychological in the real sensations of strength and a uh, and an inner lightness of being. But that, you know, you said something very interesting. Um, Marianne from Spirituality and Practice sent me a couple of your teachings from this class, and in one of those, you said um, hope is not an emotion; it's a sensation. Um, yeah. I may be paraphrasing you there. No, you got it exactly. Most of us in the West are not not trained to look at our body in terms of sensation and the subtle alivenesses. And so for most of us, hope is a feeling. It's a happy, happy feeling. If you start paying attention to how hope actually uh, plays out in your body, uh, you'd notice that it, it begins to unpack and unfold as a sensation of lightness, of upward lifting, of, you know, of in one of the spiritual practices we're actually, that uh, come with the course, we're actually having people work with levitation. But oh. I don't think levitation <laughs> like St. Joseph of Arimathea floating up into the sky. But the simple levitation of like raising your arm, that you get the, every time we're raising our eyes, what we're doing is we're summoning something in ourself that moves upwind against the force of gravity. And hope is like that sensation in us. It's kind of, it, from the sensation level, it's the polar opposite of depression. Yeah, it's supportive. And uplifting. And, yeah. and it often has nothing to do, it typically has nothing to do with external circumstances. It has more to do with something that takes place deep in the kind of marrow of our own being uh, for, for mysterious and miraculous reasons. Yeah, and it can... Uh hope is something that can dramatically shift our conscious awareness yeah yeah so you know um i wanted to ask you if you had a final thought because we're we've kind of run out of time and wish we had more time to explore this cynthia but uh is there a final thought or a quote or some idea you'd like to leave with our audience yeah the challenge that i'm going to throw out to people in the e-course uh is hey you know we can actually make hope if our planet feels hopeless, we don't have to work to try and change everything outside so we can mm. so that we can feel hopeful again. That because hope is a sensation, because hope comes connected to some of these other theological virtues like faith and love that are also spiritual energies, we can seize onto that and begin to make it in self in our own marrow. So we create hope and bestow hope on the world, just like in Babette's feast, Babette bestowed hope mm. on the congregation when she cooked them this dinner of such abundance. And so one of the inner threads in the course is I'm going to show people how to do this and suggest that we need to do this 
for the sake of our planet, for the sake of the future generations. Because in the absence of hope, our planet is literally starving to death. Well, that's very profound. But also, uh, the message there is is that we can really look and notice the abundance that is around us. And yeah. that is a, a very uplifting kind of a thing. Well, I've, I've felt uplifted by our talk today. And it was beautiful getting to have you on the show and getting to talk with you. Uh, but we've run out of time today. Let's be sure to tell our listeners about your website and where they can find out about the class. But your website is CynthiaBourgeault.org. And that's uh, Cynthia, B-O-U-R-G-E-A-L-U-T.org. And then you can also go and you can find your books there, right? And other information about your work. And then the spiritual spirituality and practice, that's spelled as one big long word, dot com, is where they can sign up for your class. Uh, and again, that's starting around Lent. Uh, for those who tuned into the Pathways show late, this is your host, Donald Altman, author of the new and the new and mystical and spiritual novel Travelers. Other books include Simply Mindful, a seven-week course and personal handbook for mindful living, One Minute Mindfulness, Reflect. The Mindfulness Toolbox and others. You can learn more about my courses, CDs, and books at mindfulpractices.com. It's M-I-N-D-F-U-L practices.com. In a second, I'll tell you how you can rewind and replay this interview whenever you want via the internet or as a free podcast. Today, we've been visiting with author and teacher and mystic Cynthia Berjalt, an internationally known Christian contemplative, as well as a leader in the field of spirituality. I want to say thank you to all our listeners for tuning into Pathways, which is broadcast and streamed via KBOO-FM Sunday mornings at 8.30 USA Pacific Time. Podcasts of today's show, which you can listen to and forward to others, are available for free at Divination.com, and that's D-I-V-I-Nation.com, as well as via iTunes and other free podcast servers. This is Donald Altman, along with our other Pathways host, Paul O'Brien, reminding you to tell your friends about Pathways radio and podcasts. Thanks again to Cynthia Berjalt and to all of you listeners for tuning in and being a part of the Pathways conversation.
are listening to KBOO Portland. And now Slavic Radio Hour presents Music for the Hour, courtesy of Soul Search and Destroy on YouTube. <laughs> 